Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Every state is working so hard on this right now. It's a really big logistical challenge. Honestly, it's a bit harder in our urban areas than our rural areas. As of January 2021, Alaska is number one. It's the U.S. state that has vaccinated the largest percentage of its population against COVID-19. That might seem surprising. Rural areas typically have a harder time accessing medical care. There are fewer hospitals, fewer doctors and nurses, and it's challenging to deliver medical supplies into rugged wilderness. So when it comes to fighting COVID-19, how has Alaska been so successful reaching remote communities? We do have 229 independent sovereign tribes in the state of Alaska who have their own distribution. We are partnered with them at every level to get it out. They've got testing supplies. When they have the knowledge and resources, when they have vaccine, they'll get it out, they'll get it done. They just need the resources to do it collaboration and coordination among agencies. The Department of Defense, Veteran Affairs, and the Indian Health Service has been a big part of Alaska's success. As cities and states across the U.S. continue to hone their distribution plans, there are lessons to be learned. Starting with this one, use every resource available. We have had dog sleds and helicopters and boat up vaccines and ferries and planes and people showing up on snow machine to get vaccinated. Dr. Ann Zink is the chief medical officer of the state of Alaska, and she believes the challenges of COVID-19 vaccine distribution are surmountable. Distribution of vaccine across rural Alaska is solvable. My co-host Ann Applebaum spoke with Dr. Zink about some of the unique challenges Alaska faces and what we can all learn from their successes across the state. That little star at the end of your shipment that says, you know, does, does not ship to Alaska and Hawaii makes a difference up here. So we've always had to have an existing infrastructure and plan for vaccine distribution across the state. We've really built on it for the COVID-19 vaccine. 
Um, it's probably worth mentioning that Alaska is one of the five smallest states in the U.S. based on population, and a lot of your residents are concentrated in the city of Anchorage. Um, but Alaska is also a state with a lot of wilderness, and throughout the state, there are pockets of small communities tucked into rural areas. Am I correct in imagining, I don't know, dog sleds, people on skis? Is this too stereotyped? Uh, how, how are you getting vaccines out of Anchorage and into the, into the farthest flung communities in your state? Thanks for asking. I don't think I've ever heard our state described as small. We are not, not very populous, but we are uh, larger than Texas, Montana, and California combined. So it is a very large geographical space, although, as you mentioned, not many people. And you are not far flung. We have had dog sleds and helicopters and boat up vaccines and ferries and planes and people showing up on snow machine to get vaccinated uh, before the plane takes off to the next village. So it's been a pretty interesting and beautiful distribution across a wild and wondrous state. And how do you normally get medical service to your most rural, most far-flung residents? Sometimes it is boat, a lot of airfare. Many of our communities can only be reached by air, so there's no roads that go to and from them. So we use not only medical air transport, but also commercial air transport. We have many small planes and small airlines that helps to transport between many of our communities. Everything from a swab to bringing in a woman who you know is about to deliver uh, to getting out vaccine. These are all kind of complex logistical challenges that are always a part of Alaska's healthcare. Right. That's really interesting. I'm wondering if in big cities like New York and L.A., where they're having more trouble with the, distributing the vaccine, it's not because they're lazier. I mean, they're they're not used to having to reach out to people in the same way that you guys do. Yeah, no, I mean, I think every state is working so hard on this right now. It's a really big logistical challenge. Honestly, it's a bit harder in our urban areas than our rural areas. I mean, I think that there's four major reasons we've been able to get vaccine out quickly. First of all, I think uh, when you have smaller communities, communities can really rally around the, the cry very quickly. And we've just seen tremendous work by Alaskans. We do also, our pandemic is kind of slowing down here. So that gives more space for our public health team, as well as the hospital personnel and public health nursing and nurses across the state, more space and time to be able to respond uh, to the vaccine and not having to respond to the pandemic in the same sort of way. There's also federal uh, distribution for tribes as well as the VA and DOD. We do have the highest percentage of veterans than any other state per capita. And we do have 229 independent sovereign tribes in the state of Alaska who have their own distribution. We are partnered with them at every level to get it out. They had a choice to go with IHS or to go with the state, and we did partner with them to help get that out. And I think that that partnership is really paying off, um, both to get in their vaccine, get out their vaccine, and to be able to coordinate transportation. And then we also are being treated kind of like a territory. So we're getting month to month allocation. And so that allows us to order in, say, an entire month's uh, set for a place like Adiac that requires a plane and then a helicopter to get there and be able to ship that rather than having to wait for each week's to come in before we can get enough. I mean, many of our communities, it might be a vial or a half of a vial that might meet the first phase 1A or even the beginning of phase 1B criteria. So by being able to kind of pool resources together like that with multiple partners, it's really helped us to get vaccine out faster. I mean, tell me a little bit more about the native communities in Alaska. I understand it's a very diverse population. There are Alaska natives, American Indian communities, native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders. And also, I understand that they've been disproportionately affected by COVID. Um, one report I saw showed that 37 percent of those who died from the virus in Alaska were native. Um, is there any special strategy that you need to reach them? How do you think about those communities? 
Thanks for asking that because it is a hugely important topic. Um, 16% of our population is Alaska Native people, yet uh, currently they actually make up 39% of our deaths. So we just reran the numbers. They were 37 and we just uh, reran them. We've seen that with every pandemic from the 1918 pandemic on. We've had communities completely uh, devastated by the 1918 pandemic where language and culture were lost and entire orphanages were built. And that history looms large uh, in many of our communities and has played a very large role in our response from day one to this pandemic, remembering that historical trauma and trying to not repeat it. 50% of our testing sites are uh, run by the native system. Again, only 16% of the population. We have communities where it can take two weeks to get a swab out. We've unfortunately had people die where we've been unable to get them out or oxygen in because the weather has been so bad. In some regions, up to 60% of the communities have no running water and sewer, uh, and that makes a really challenging environment to be able to fight respiratory infections, and we see high rates of respiratory infections in those communities. So it, it plays a really big role in the making sure that we're getting equitable distribution and we have a chance for equitable outcomes for all Alaskans. And that takes different resources in different parts of the country. It takes different part resources in Alaska. What we found in our communities is when you can empower them, they can protect themselves. They've got testing supplies. When they have the knowledge and resources, when they have vaccine, they'll get it out, they'll get it done. They just need the resources to do it. So by empowering, you mean give them resources directly. I understand that in some cases, the supply of vaccine did go straight to Native communities. Was that logistically important, psychologically important? Yeah, all of the above. So IHS did have its own distribution in all 229 tribes opted to have the state help distribute the vaccine around the state. And that was just because we've always had this close working relationship and very grateful for that IHS allocation and working very hard with them to distribute as quickly as possible, particularly to the most vulnerable populations to make sure that they uh, have this opportunity to be protected. They can decide on how they want to use the vaccine uh, and how they want to prioritize it in their community. So, for example, indigenous language speakers uh, have been prioritized by many of our tribal communities to make sure that that language continues on. So being able to prioritize what's important uh, in that community and being able to get vaccine out quickly. Do you think that any of these strategies, um, the things that we're talking about, would work well in other rural or remote or rugged parts of the United States? Um, whether it's direct distribution to particular regions, whether it's um, prioritizing even unique methods of transport. I mean, can you can you extrapolate from your experience and imagine how it could be used elsewhere? Yeah, it's interesting to look at the map and to see, you know, kind of who's been able to vaccinate uh, more quickly. It's been some of our more rural states when you look at it, South Dakota, North Dakota, West Virginia, Alaska, uh, for sure. I think that we've been able to really build on our community partnerships and community strengths. And I think that that is very helpful in being able to get out vaccine very, very quickly. It's a, it's a whole other burden and a huge challenge in really large urban areas. And, and like I said, even here, our urban areas are sometimes our more challenging issues. You need more technology for scheduling. Um, you need just to manage a lot more people. Communication becomes much harder. Um, while logistics is something that is easier to overcome than, than some of those other barriers. So I think that relying on partners, um, really being able to ask communities what makes sense for them. I think being able to ask for help, that's been a big thing for us. We've just said, okay, we've got this vaccine. How can you get it out? And we've had, you know, like for example, in one of our communities, we we're struggling to get vaccine out and a bunch of people who had suffered opioid addiction said, we'll help and we'll call and they help schedule appointments and drive elders and, and volunteer at a site and be able to move it forward. So it's one of the things I really love about working in Alaska is these community uh, resources and efforts. But I think it's something 
that we can do more of as a country is being able to ask each other for help and being able to rely on a diverse set of partners to be able to do everything from you know vaccine distribution to other healthcare needs so that we collectively can be more healthy and well together and, and look outside of traditional partners. It doesn't just have to be the nurse or the doctor or the state or the federal government to do this. It really takes all of us. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. 
Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Let me ask you a little bit about yourself. Um, when the pandemic hit last spring, you'd only been the chief medical officer for about six months. Um, what was it like to have to deal with such a huge emergency so quickly? How did you, um, how did you, how did you begin to think about it when faced with this problem? Yeah, so I'm a practicing emergency medicine physician. Um, it's my background, and I still see patients. So I think that I, I bring that approach to whatever I, I do. I had an experience early in residency that reminded me how important it is to treat the patient first and remember that the rest is noise. And so that's been kind of my guiding professional philosophy throughout my entire career in medicine. I really believe in open, honest communication. We have just dozens of these echoes where we have calls with the public and healthcare workers and vaccine providers all across the state. So having a lot of two-way conversations, really, really important. And just relying on our team as emergency medicine doctor, I'm not the cardiologist, I'm not the orthopedic surgeon, I'm not the primary care doctor who knows their history, but I'm that person in a time of crisis who helps to connect the pieces together for one goal, and that's the health of my patient. And I just see this role and as a chief medical officer as an extension of that. I'm not the epidemiologist, I'm not the infectious disease doctor, I'm not the logistical expert, I'm just the ER doc in the center, uh, really trying to figure out what makes sense for the health and well-being of Alaskans. So in a lot of parts of the country, I know that public health officials have faced a lot of pushback and even personal threats. Um, in some places, there have been a lot of resignations. People say there's too much political pressure from the job. Have you found any of that in Alaska? And how, how have you coped with the politicization of this crisis and the, um, the depth of anger that people have felt about some of the restrictions that have been placed on them? Yeah, I think this this pandemic's been hard on everyone. It's been hard on Alaskans. It's been hard on public health officials. It's been incredibly hard on my team, both because of political, but just because of work. It's just been nonstop for you know almost a year now, of of responding and really taking on the responsibility of of every death, of every hospitalization, of every vaccine being distributed, and making sure that it's done uh, as fast and fair as we possibly can. I think, again, in the emergency department, I'm used to people being scared and frustrated and angry. And sometimes when they are hurt or lost or upset, that's when they lash out. And I have found it useful to just really stay focused on on my own internal principles and what I can do for the patient that moment. And I think that that clarity has been helpful despite a lot of frustration. I also, early on in the pandemic, when I was looking around to other countries and other states, Felt like when a state could work collectively together or a country could work collectively together, despite large differences of opinions, they did better. There were less cases, there were less deaths, that uh, COVID really takes advantage of the cracks between us. And it was more important to me that I work collectively than any specific policy, any one decision. And so I don't always agree with the governor. He doesn't always agree with me. I don't always agree with my team. Uh, and we hash it out together uh, as adults and go around and around and share our sides. And at the end of the day, try to always make decisions collectively together because we feel like that is more important to controlling COVID than any single policy decision. And you do all of this while still working occasionally as an ER doc. Is that what I, is that what I heard? 
Yeah, I still work in the emergency department. I, I love it. It's helpful. Uh, it's really grounding. It's uh, it's great to f- solve little problems. I can sew a laceration and it looks better, which is sometimes way easier than trying to get vaccine out across our state. Uh, so it's rewarding uh, in that way. Um, I really just love talking to people and hearing their stories. It's this incredible gift in medicine to be able to walk into someone's room who you've never met. And within seconds, uh, they tell you, you know, something that's really scaring them or something that's super concerning to them or they're in pain and you're able to help them. Uh, So I find that my work as a chief medical officer helps me with uh, the feeling of frustration and that the systems are never going to change in the ER, but working in the ER helps to ground me in the work that we're doing and the people that it's serving, just the complexity of how medicine presents and how it's not all a cookbook um, and how it's not all just follow this and this is what happens. I love that in the emergency room. And I found that I just kept serving and making sure that what we're doing really has meaning and that it's really working at the ground level. So to me, they're kind of a yin and yang of each other and I couldn't do one without the other. Sounds very much like how COVID had to be approached. I mean, we we didn't understand it at first. It unveiled itself slowly. Um, at each stage, there have been new demands, hospitalizations, now vaccinations, and at each stage, there's a lot of mystery. Is that is is that is that part of why you've you've been so passionate about it? They have felt incredibly intertwined. There's clearly huge differences between the two jobs as well, um, but I find that the skills from one really have helped with the other. We have limitations. You know, I am not an infectious disease doctor. I've learned so much infectious disease this past year. But I have an amazing team that I've been able to rely on and say, help me understand this. I'm not sure about this. And have spent a lot of my time just trying to uh, learn more about vaccinology or immunology, things that were not a part of my emergency medicine world prior to this. I don't think Alaska was originally part of your life either. You you were born in Colorado, I think, where you grew up in Colorado. What 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 drew you to Alaska and 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 how did you become so integrated into the community of the state? You're right. Alaska was not a part of my plan. Um, I, you mentioned, grew up in Colorado. During college, I would spend my summers uh, either in Wyoming or then most of my summers actually in Alaska, working in the mountains of Alaska and completely fell in love with this place. And I actually met my husband up here and we, he followed me down to residency and med school um, in California and then in Utah. And after that, you know, he said, I did the seven years of med school and residency for you. Can you do three years of Alaska for me? I, I miss those mountains and I miss being up there. I interviewed up here and took a job in Palmer, Alaska in this um, kind of smallish ER. It was about as urban as uh, he could live and about as rural as I could work. Uh, and I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the medicine. I fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the community, trying to figure out solutions together And I am the sort of person who keeps asking like, well, why not? And how about this? And can't we make this better? And one meeting after another led to multiple meetings and ultimately led to me having this job. My predecessor uh, took the job as the deputy director at the CDC over infectious disease. Um, And he's been a great mentor through this as well. So Dr. Zink, um, we like to end all of our episodes by offering suggestions to listeners um, giving them ways they can be help they can help in solving problems as well. What can people do to better support um, d- the delivery of vaccines and the rural communities in their states? Lean in, get involved. Um, my husband always told me to show up for the climb, show up for your community, ask how you can help. Every state and every county and every community is a little bit different, but there are lots of volunteer organizations. 
You can check with Red Cross. You can check with your local public health department. Most public health departments do have a way for people to volunteer if you're a licensed healthcare professional or if you're someone who wants to volunteer to bring food or to drive people uh, to those areas. I am amazed at the incredible ingenuity and problem solving that can happen at the local level. And it might be driving seniors to the local place to get vaccinated. It may be helping them with the website. It may be trying to figure out distribution uh, and working with your community. There's just real power in community. So looking around your community and looking at who's left out, who doesn't know that it's their turn to be vaccinated? How can you reach out to them and how can you make sure that they are connected? Even those little small things that may not get a big notice. If you, you know, pick up two or three of your friends and neighbors and, and help them get vaccinated, help them work through the system. Uh, I think that that makes a big difference. This is a huge lift. I think so many times I just see people waiting for someone else to do the vaccine distribution or waiting for someone else to figure out the problem. We just need the ingenuity of every, every American helping to solve this problem together. Everybody stepping into this space. Dr. Ann Zink is the Chief Medical Officer of Alaska and also an ER doctor. Next week on Solvable, I'm going to sit down with my co-host Ann Applebaum for a conversation about repairing American democracy. Ann is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. Her most recent book is about the rise of authoritarianism around the world. President Joe Biden has taken his seat in the Oval Office and our country is deeply polarized. Ann and I will talk about what steps might be useful to take to diminish conflict and restore confidence in our political future. Please join us. Solvable is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Research and booking by Lisa Dunn. Our managing producer is Catherine Girardeau. And Pushkin's executive producer is Mia Lobel. I'm Jacob Weisberg. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists. Like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.